Welcome to The Soul Connection, an exploration of the interconnectivity between our social influencers, physical and emotional well-being, with a spark of spirituality. Please welcome your host, The Soul Doctor, Dr. Christiane Lepertz, known as Dr. K. Hello, welcome to The Soul Connection. This is your soul doctor, Dr. K, and we have a very timely show today. Our show, of course, explores a complex relationship between the biological, psychological, spiritual, and cultural aspects of life that impact our soul every day. And today's guest, we are bringing in a very esteemed attorney from San Antonio, Texas, the president of the Justice Foundation, recipient of the John Robinson's Morality Award for his contributions in fighting for life. We have attorney Alan Parker. I thank you so much for making time for us today and joining us and sharing some of your most interesting, I would say, historically important revelations that you've come across in this fight and these these years that you have put forward as the president of the Justice Foundation. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on and for all you do to provide soul care for America. We need yes. It. Well, part of the reason I call myself the soul doctor and Dr. K is that Dr. K can be anybody. It can be Dr. Keith, it can be Dr. Karen, it can be anybody. And anybody can be a soul doctor as long as you care about someone else. You don't need to have some big degree. You just have to have the gospel of love in your heart. And soul repair is what every human being needs. So that goes hand in hand with some of the things we're going to talk about today. Um, We have a lot of cultural discord that we're trying to work through as a country. And we're on the heels of a very important decision coming out of our Supreme Court, being the Roe versus Wade, and the likelihood or high probability of it being overturned. And I know you have done a lot of work on this subject. So I wanted to put forward a little bit of history of how this particular subject, it's been a very divisive subject in America. And a lot of people have made such um, heartfelt stances on both sides. But the truth of the matter is, is a lot of people have gotten enriched on both sides as well. So we want to talk a little bit about the history, how it came to be, and I want to get some of your real life encounters with this subject. So if you don't mind, shall we go back in time? That sounds great. All right. So let's let's head back to 1973, where this whole mess started. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I've done a little bit of research on this, and I was talking to you briefly before the show about the woman known as Jane Rowe and how her case came to be and being highly contentious because in the end, both sides were claiming that she was one of their advocates. And I just wanted to get your insight on it because, I mean, this whole case even starts in your home state. So feel free to take the ball here. Give me your expertise. It it was one of the greatest honors of my life to represent Norma McCorvey, who was the Roe of Roe v. Wade, in her legal efforts to reverse her own landmark Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade. And I began to do that in the year 2000. It's interesting, at the exact same time, I also began to represent Sandra Kano, 
who was Mary Doe of Doe v. Bolton, the companion case to Roe v. Wade. So there were two women in 1973 who both felt that they were used by the legal system to accomplish a goal that the Supreme Court wanted to accomplish, not that they wanted for themselves. And if people want to read their sworn testimonies that we gave to the Supreme Court, that's available on our website at thejusticefoundation.org. And I just mentioned that because I'm gonna tell the story with you today, but they could read it in their own words that they swore to in the motions that we filed on their behalf asking them to reverse their own case. So think about that. This is the first time in American history that two people who won a landmark Supreme Court have gone back to the Supreme Court and said, we were wrong, our cases were wrong, please reverse our own cases. So right there, you know that this is a highly unusual area of the law. And in Norma's case, who was Roe, she did want an abortion. And so she was on her third child. Her first child, uh, like many people, Norma, by her own admission, and, and pretty much this is uniformly agreed to, she was living on the street. She was a drug user. She was kind of bisexual. She would have relationships with women and men. And she got pregnant. And the first child, her Norma's mother took over raising the child. We have many grandparents in America raising grandchildren because the family is being destroyed in America. And the, yes. collateral, the collateral damage are the kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that first child's name was Melissa. She's come out publicly now. I didn't used to reveal these names, but they've come out publicly. And then the second child was placed for a traditional adoption. And then the third child, the Roe baby, Norma found that even adoption can be difficult. And here's the reason why. Once you're pregnant, you are a mother. You are a biological mother. I believe there's a physical tie and a soul tie and a spiritual connection. Now, Mm -hmm. if you believe in evolution, then for a million years or so, the species has been designed for mothers to protect their babies. So that the species thrives. Mm -hmm. It's just evolutionary. But we think in the modern area, oh, we'll just kill that baby. And the the lie, and by the way, I want to say this, everything I know about the abortion industry comes from the 4,728 testimonies, legally admissible written testimonies that I've got from women. And I represent 2,249 women who had abortions in the Dobbs case, the Mississippi case that could ban abortion. So anyway, the one of the women told me once, they, Mr. Parker, they lied to me. They said, 10 minutes, you'll never have to think about it again. That's the lie of the abortion industry. Let's solve your problem. You have a child. You're not sure if you can take care of it. You don't want to be a parent or you don't think I, you think I can't be a parent. What do we do? That was the problem in 1973. If you read Woe, it was the problem of the unwanted child. And do we make women bear that child or are we going to allow women? Now, the court didn't say they were going to allow killing a child. In 1973, the court said, quote, at this state in the development of man's knowledge, the judiciary cannot speculate as to when life begins. 
So the court purported to say, well, we know the woman can be hurt by a difficult situation and difficult life. So let's help the women and maybe we're not killing a child. So Norma actually wanted a child. Now, Sandra, her story is vastly different. And she shows another one of the problems of litigating on the backs of people you don't even know who they are. Mary Doe never had her deposition taken. When she contacted me in the year 2000, she said, Mr. Parker, that Doe is a fraud. Doe created the health exception. And the record said that Mary Doe had had some children taken away from Child Protective Services. That was correct. But Mary Sandra Kano, my client, wanted her children back. She thought the ACLU was helping her get her children back. She didn't, and she never wanted to kill a child. But once you make abortion legal, it allows other people to force women to have an abortion to solve their problem. Let me give you the three most common examples. One of the way, number one is adult parents forcing a minor daughter to have an abortion or some adult man forcing a woman to abort his child because he doesn't want to be a father or pay child support. And the third is human trafficking and prostitution. Mm. And in, in Sandra's case, her mother and a lawyer told her, we've gotten an abortion for you tomorrow. And we've packed your suitcase and you're going to grow into Grady Hospital because the Georgia law, Texas was a pure ban on abortion except to save the life of the mother. Georgia had already liberalized its law for therapeutic abortions. If three judges said you needed abortion for the women's health, you could get an abortion. And Sandra took that suitcase and fled to Oklahoma during the middle of the case to avoid being forced to have an abortion. She was an adult, but both Norma and Sandra were very low educated, maybe fifth or sixth grade education levels, uh, very dependent on other people to help take care of them. But she fled and she said, Mr. Parker, that case, Doe v. Bolton, the companion to Roe, together they created this jurisprudence of abortion rights. It was a doom on my shoulders from the beginning. Mm. So. So both women, when I talked to them in the year 2000, because here's how Norma had changed. She was in theory, she never had an abortion. Neither one of the women ever had an abortion. But Norma began to work in the abortion clinics in about 1993 or four. One of the rescue groups got moved in right next to her. And they began to witness to Norma. And one of the sidewalk counselors was a woman with a little girl named Emily and Emily befriended her and they invited Norma to church and Norma's conscience had already begun to bother her. You can read about it in her sworn testimony at the justicefoundation.org. She began to hear the pitter patter of little feet in the abortion clinic. There were no live children there, but she heard them running down the halls. Mm -hmm. She heard flowers crying outside the clinic on her smoke breaks. And, and Norma was a hellcat, to use her own phrase, and she'd curse at the pro-lifers, and she cursed at people, and she started seeing the abuse of the women by the abortion industry, by her own doctors. There was no counseling. There were no alternatives. Women were starting to use it as birth control. Norma felt like somebody like her with a rough life might should be able to have it, but it ought to be rare, even in her early mind. And... Uh, 
So when Emily invited her to church, well, first of all, Emily heard her say once to somebody, go to hell. And uh, Emily said, Miss Norma, you don't want to say that to anybody. You don't want anybody to go to hell. Hell is a terrible place. And she invited Miss Norma to go to church. And Norma heard the gospel of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Because God is a judge. You know, we all want justice. Uh, everybody would say that if someone murdered your mother, they ought to be punished for that, right? I think everybody agrees. That's why we have laws against murder. The question in the abortion case is, are we going to extend that law that says you can't murder a human being to the child in the womb? But everybody thinks you shouldn't be able to norm, uh, murder uh, a person after birth. So because there's a sense of justice in all of us, we want God mm -hmm. to be just, and he is just. So there has to be a penalty for sin. The Romans said, without penalty, there is no law. And, and we're moving into a lawless area where people aren't willing to abide by the law. And some prosecutors say, I'm not going to enforce that law. That's a corruption of the whole process. The people are supposed to pass the laws. The judges are supposed to follow the laws. And then the prosecutors are supposed to enforce them. And the judge will hear the evidence as to whether a crime's been committed. In a way, that goes to our whole constitutional theory. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Why? Was it because the founders had an oligopoly and they decided what rule? No, it was ratified by the people. And every judge and every prosecutor takes an oath to defend this constitution. And it's a written constitution. If you can read, you can know what's in the constitution. And judges swear to defend and interpret the constitution. Well, Roe said, there's no right to it. The word abortion is not in the constitution at all. And even the court acknowledged that. They found it in the penumbra of the Constitution, which is the dark shadow of the Constitution, like the penumbra around the sun or mm -hmm. something. It's not really there. It's kind of like a shadow. So they, those people who claim they're fighting for democracy by threatening to kill judges, the Supreme Court is not a democratic institution. The laws are supposed to be passed by the people. The Constitution has an amendment process by the people. It's been amended 27 times by the people. Women got the right to vote when they had to convince men to give them the right to vote. And today, no one talks about taking away women's right to vote because it was in the Constitution. The people adopted it. We can take away the, the right, supposedly, and I don't even think it's it in the constitution, but that opinion of Roe can be changed by five judges because it wasn't adopted by the people. It was adopted by the judges. And so we really do need to resolve the matter through the people. The court system was not a good way to do it. Nor, uh, both Norma and Sandra uh, wanted their court decisions to be changed and the women who've been hurt by abortion. And today, let me just say this, I also represent the moral outcry petition. And it is a petition to the Supreme Court with 539,000 signatures and five legal reasons under the law of judicial precedent why the Supreme Court should reverse Roe v. Wade at this time. And if I could just briefly say the top three, 
-hmm. Number one, it's a crime against humanity. It's killing a human being. And the Supreme Court in 2007 did say that at the moment of an abortion, an infant life is being uh, killed. And I'll quote it. And they cited Sandra Kano and 180 women hurt by abortion in a brief that we filed for them in 2007. The court upheld the federal ban on partial birth abortion in 2007 after the court had struck down 38 state laws banning partial birth abortion in 2000. So in seven years, we collected the testimonies for Norma and Sandra originally. We went to the court and the court said, it's unexceptionable to conclude that some women come to regret aborting the infant life they once created and sustained. See brief of 180 women hurt by abortion, page 22 to 24. And what was on those pages? Not great legal argument, but it was the testimony of the women hurt by abortion, just page after page of different ways it devastated them. So now we know it's a human life. I also represent the first formerly frozen human embryo to ever file a brief at the U.S. Supreme Court in the Dobbs case. She was frozen. Her name is Hannah S. And she was frozen. She was conceived in a Petri dish through in vitro fertilization. And she was frozen for two and a half years. So she was alive during that process. And at the end of two and a half years, she was taken, thawed, and then placed into the adoptive womb of her mother, Marlene. So Hmm. the reason that's critical, even Roe, you like history, even in Roe, I I quoted earlier uh, what they said. They didn't know when life begins. But even Roe, they said, after viability, the states are free to ban abortion. And they defined viability as the point at which the child can live outside the womb, albeit with artificial aid. Now, in 1973, that was about 24 weeks. The baby could be born and live in a NICU unit. They had to have artificial aid, but they could live, okay? Mm -hmm. So the court said at that point, you could ban abortion. Well, today, we know your viability. There are actually hundreds of thousands of humans in frozen storage containers waiting to be born, but they're alive. They're not dead there. They don't come back to life. So science shows that human mothers and human fathers produce human children. They're a member of the species, homo sapiens, from the beginning. And if you believe in human rights, when do human rights begin? When we become human. And we become human when the sperm and the egg come together. That's just pure science. The chromosomes, it's not a woman in a woman's body. Half the children in the womb are men. They're boys, they're male. And and the woman, it's not the woman's body. If you send it to a DNA lab, a sample from her arm and the child in the womb and set it anonymously to a DNA lab, the DNA test would say there are two humans involved. Could be one's male, one's female, or it could be male, female and female, you know, half the people are male or female. So this is all new science. So number one, it's a crime against humanity. Number two, it hurts women. And number three, there's a far better alternative today that could end the abortion wars. And that is the safe haven law in all 50 states. Today, if Roe v. Wade is reversed tomorrow, even if a woman lives in a state that uh, makes it a ban on abortion, even in those states, 
No woman has to parent a child if she does not want to, or if she feels she can't. And I represent thousands of women. There are hard circumstances. If you've got four kids, your husband just divorced you, and you find out you're pregnant and you don't have a job, you're going to feel very, very uh, uncertain about your future. And I understand. Mm -hmm. But the lie is not to kill the child and hurt yourself. Today, a woman can simply drop her baby off at a hospital or fire station or other designated safe spot within a certain period of time after birth, and the state will take the baby. So you can be free of the burden of parenting without killing the child and hurting yourself. And it's free, unlike abortion. So it's equally available to the rich and the poor. You don't have to travel to another state. Every state has hospitals and fire stations, far more of them than there are abortion doctors. There's mm -hmm. only one abortion facility in Mississippi. Why is that? It's legal. Most doctors do not want to kill an infant life in the womb. They get into medicine to save life, not to kill. But, they, but we all have compassion for women. So the safe haven law is the alternative that women should use. If you're low income, the state will pay for your medical bills and your delivery. You will walk out of the hospital, leave the baby behind. If you're not sure what your future is going to be, in exchange for a few months of pregnancy, which is serious, the state is willing to give 18 years of freedom from parenting. And in the oral argument, Justice Amy Coney Barrett brought up the safe haven argument twice. And she said to the Solicitor General of the United States, Amy Prolegar, doesn't the safe haven law eliminate the burden of parenting? Now, it doesn't eliminate the burden of pregnancy completely, because, but what we're going to take off the table is the option that kills a human being and damages many, many women. Yes. There's an article in the British Journal of Psychiatry, peer-reviewed, that say at least about 10% of women's anxiety, depressions, suicide attempts, substance abuse, and things like that is attributable to their abortions. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if it's just 10% of 600,000 women a year, that's 60,000 women a year. And, and the numbers are much, much higher. If you listen even to those who say, I had to have an abortion, it's usually some desperate circumstance or something. But the safe haven law eliminates all the reasons, pretty much, for needing an immediate relief. Um, even you know, even rape or incest, which are difficult. And I represent women who were raped and I represent women who killed their child. And then they began to feel like I was the murderer before I was the victim of a rapist. And now I'm the murderer of an innocent child who did nothing to me. And again, no woman should have to take care of a, a rapist child, but the safe haven law eliminates that. Mm -hmm. and, and so I believe it's the win, win, win. It's love for the child and justice. We're not going to kill human beings. It's love for the mother and mercy. Don't hurt yourself. Give us the child. And it's love through the safe haven law for the children. And would all of those children end up in foster care? No. There are one to two million women every year waiting to adopt newborn children. There are six million women every year who are infertile. They're unable to have a child after a year of trying. Different reasons exist why. 
including sometimes it's the man who, you know, she's married to somebody and he can't have kids. Well, that, you know, affects the marriage and her. Mm-hmm. So six million every year are trying to do something. And about every year, about two million of them reach the point they say, well, I'd like to adopt a child. If I can't have my own baby, I could take care of a baby. And many people don't feel competent to take care of a neglected and abused child in foster care. But a little baby from the beginning, they think I could be a good mom and a good dad. And that's the loving solution we need to adopt. Yeah. Well, uh, very good points. Very good points. Um, And I appreciate you letting them get out because I've told the Washington Post about this. I've I've dealt with their Supreme Court reporters. Why don't you all tell the truth? And, And it's documented and it's in our brief and they never disputed. You, you tell America, uh, women will be, uh, you know, they'll be just tortured and they'll have to do all this stuff. You never tell them about the safe haven alternative. And it's already the law. It's not a policy we're advocating. You can go to nationalsafehavenalliance.org um, or just Google safe haven and it'll come up. Every state's a little bit different, usually 3, 30, 60, 90 days. And the places vary a little bit. But basically, if you remember, Shortly after birth, hospital or fire station, you're in good shape. And that is some great, great wisdom because that is a, a huge part of what's happening in this division. This people are, are taking arms up against each other. It's very divisive um, because of the confusion that surrounds the topic. And you bring a lot of really great clarity to it. And and that's why I wanted to touch base with you again, because you have practical experience. You know the players firsthand. You know their intentions. You know how it has been hijacked. You have seen both sides use this to politically enrich themselves uh, and rally people for power. And that was never the argument in the first place. No, the abortion industry, Planned Parenthood alone, is about a half a billion dollar a year business. And they have billions of dollars in assets. They're one of the world's richest charities. And uh, they have a huge amount. And that's just publicly available on their websites, their annual, annual reports and stuff. They're always asking for taxpayer money, but they have huge endowments and they make money off of this. So there's a huge business incentive. And let me ask you this. Would pretty much everybody would agree abortion is one of the most controversial issues in, in American life today? I think that's- It is, it is. And, and then, um, but the abortion, if you went to a doctor and there was a controversial procedure, wouldn't you expect your doctor to tell you both sides of the issue and then let you make an informed choice? But that's not what the abortion industry does. I, someday there will be the equivalent of massive tobacco litigation against the abortion industry for all the information that they have known and suppressed. They don't tell women, for example, that the Supreme Court says you could have devastating psychological consequences. You know, that's a, that's a fact. You would think that, that would fact. be somewhat, in, somewhat of concern to some women and, and the test is, would a reasonable woman want to know these things? But they only tell you 10 minutes, you'll never have to think about it again. Or the most common reaction is relief. 
which is partially true, because if you're in a crisis pregnancy, even when it's over, our women will often say their first reaction was relief. They're glad it's over. But then the regrets and the memories and the nightmares come along. And then they think, oh, my God, what have I done? Or where would my child be at this stage of their life? And mm. there's some of that with adoption also. Where would my, and that's why open adoptions are a better, probably emo, emotionally healthy response. But when you place your child for adoption, you don't have the guilt of killing your child because you haven't killed the child. Right. Correct. And, and honestly, that, that viability line that they originally put forward keeps moving. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. From, from state to state, from mind to mind. And who are we to really play God with that? That's right. That's kind of the question here. Is... And, and why should the Supreme Court get to make that decision for America? It's if, if, if it was a question about search and seizure and, and uh, the police trying to search your home, there's a constitutional provision that prohibits that. And when the judges enforce the written constitution, then they are doing a legitimate judicial function. If Congress passed a law saying, oh, we've got such big deficits and some people have big fancy homes, we're going to put some of our troops in the extra bedrooms that people have, quartering the troops there. People don't recognize it, but the Third Amendment prohibits the government from quartering troops and homes, which is what King George did. Now, that one's written so well that there's not much chance that's going to happen. But if Congress passed such a law, the court should immediately said that violates the Third Amendment of the Constitution. You can't do that. That's why we have a written constitution. It's to limit the power of the executive and the legislature. You know, here's another problem that's a problem for socialists in America. Our constitution enshrines private property rights. It says the Fifth Amendment, and this applies to all the governments, the government cannot take your property without just compensation. Now there's times if they're gonna build a road and they gotta build it through property, they can condemn property, but they have to pay you. They can't just say, oh, this is a good road. It's for everybody's benefit. The socialist argument is you benefit from government so we can take anything you want, make you do anything you want, and we don't have to pay you for it. But that is contrary to the fifth amendment of the constitution. And I hope that for the rest of my lifetime and for all time to come, the court protects that. But if we wanted to be a socialist nation, wouldn't it be better for the people to decide that and amend the constitution? And you know, we, we could do it if we, if we want to, but why should five socialist judges say, okay, we're not gonna honor that part of the constitution. It's outdated. Today in a modern interconnected world, you benefit from so much government, just public education for the rest of your life, you owe your community. So we're gonna decide what's best for the community. And if we need your property, we're gonna take it. And particularly, we're gonna take it from billionaires or millionaires or people who make 100,000 or if you make more than 50, it always comes down in mm -hmm. socialist countries where they, they tax the rich, quote, quote, but and I'll say this, if we want to talk about money, taxing the rich is a sin. The Ten Commandments say, don't covet your, don't steal your neighbor's property 
and don't covet your neighbor's property. The reason we lift millions of people out of poverty, why America has, the, we've raised people out of sickness and illness and poverty is when you create something in America, it's your property. You can sell it to other people. You know, Bill Gates got rich uh, by selling computers. He didn't make anybody buy a computer. He, he, had, he had a great product that does a lot of stuff. And I don't, I don't particularly like Bill Gates. I'm not, or, or Elon Musk or <clears throat> Mark Zuckerberg. He didn't make anybody do anything. And, you know, it's voluntary. And yet mm -hmm. we want people to do well. We want people constantly creating new products, constantly thinking of new ideas, writing new books, new movies. That's why we copyright creative talents, because we have this incredible reservoir of innovation in human beings. Instead, we bought into the lie that you can kill human beings and somehow you'll have a more productive society. Our social security is going bankrupt because we don't have enough people coming on board. And, and let me say this, even in the 17th and the 18th centuries, people said the world is running out of resources. They were called hmm. the Malthusians. They said at this rate, the world population will crumble. And, uh, and, they'll, and, and the Malthusian theory is resources are limited. We have, and, if, and if you have the government owning all the resources, then yes, they're limited. The only mm -hmm. people who get to use them is the elite government class, whether it's the oligarchs in Russia or the Communist Party cadre in China or, you know, the, the Democratic Party has somewhat become a party of national socialism. And what is that? Uh, national socialism is you can have private businesses, but they have to be under the control of the government. Uh, national socialism is more commonly known as Nazis uh, and the fascist and Hitler allowed German corporations to continue just like the Chinese do. The, the communists have really become fascist because they allow private businesses to flourish because it works mm -hmm. and it helps people. But then they tell the private businessmen, everything you own really belongs to the state. So if we want it, we'll get it. And if you live in a communist country, you are always under the control, if they want to, of the communist government. Right. And honestly, I mean, some of the some of those tendencies have been picked up in our culture, because if you look now, it's the mega corporations that get all the favor. They weren't shut down during a pandemic. All of the small businesses were the churches were, you know, um, Really, I think it really gets gets back to us seeing each other once again, you and me looking at each other, that we are made in the image of God. And even if we're not of the same faith, we are all humanity. We are made in his image. And if you don't believe in God, that's where people start thinking about resources over people, yes. where they start caring about the stuff versus the purpose for this life, this life journey of maturing our soul, of growing spiritually, and how we can help each other do that along the line. It's a journey of trial and error. It's a journey of learning our, our spiritual blockades and barriers and learning how to overcome them. 
learning the ones that happened before us from previous generations and learning how to undo them so that we can get further in our spiritual development, not just further in how much stuff we can acquire or how many uh, resources are reserved for us. It's a spiritual journey that we take and walk through in a human case, in a human body. And there's much deeper implications to everything we're talking about right at this moment. I had said that, you know, what every single media channel needs to do is to remind people in this country of how valuable we are to one another, who we are. We're not resource users. We are children of the most high. We are children of God and we should love one another. And even just nice messages, like reminder messages, instead of, I'm a person who believes in a frequency world. Mm -hmm. Frequencies can heal. You know that it's not just the Christian faith that lays hands on the sick and they recover. It's the same premise of the person having the green thumb and not having the green thumb because we are frequency producers and organic matter responds to it. If I have your well-being in mind, there's this thing called a vibe that people pick up on. The dictionary lists it as a noun. They pick Mm -hmm. up on it. You don't have to, even though it's invisible, you don't have to sit and explain a vibe. I've done jail ministry for over like a decade and all the inmates know what a vibe is. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, we're picking up what you're laying down. (laughs) You know, (laughs) I'm not laying anything physically down, but they're picking up on it. And so um, in this talk that I, I invited you to have with us about this pretty sensitive issue, the core issue I'm getting at is, hey, when we start seeing each other for the beautiful creation that we're meant to be and how God sees us, instead of calling hell up, let's call heaven down. That's right. You know, remember the Reverend Martin Luther King, how we ended the segregation problem in America was by saying we are made in the image of God and we should love each other. And anger and killing people is not the solution. Life is always better than death. That's Life just- is always better than death. I had a mentor. Um, he did pass here recently, but he used to say the womb was never meant to be a tomb. And so, you know, cause he would coach different people on major decisions because there is a spiritual thing that comes into people's life. There's a spiritual consequence from every action has a reaction. Just like you said, this, this big myth, 10 minutes, it's over. You never have to deal with it again. You sow, there's sowing and reaping as Christians. We call it sowing and reaping. Other religions may call it karma. What you put out comes back. And so in sometimes when I would be teaching in, in jail ministry, I would use words like karma because I'd pick it up and then I would translate it to, you know, as a Christian, it's called, you know, sowing and reaping. But that whole principle is the womb never meant to be a tomb means that there's going to be consequences to that action. You're sowing something in your life and how that's going to manifest when we invite actions into our life that don't line up spiritually with what really is right, then we have to suffer the consequences of those. And that's, that is part of our growing and overcoming 
And we need to, and we need to spiritually learn how to close all those doors that we have opened to live successfully. And then also by doing that, as we know, as Christians, that helps our downline from us grow, which is we're called to steward those people that have been entrusted to us, the next generation. We don't own them. They're not our kids. We're stewarding them. They're God's kids. We just are blessed to be able to do that. So it's really, I'm talking about, you know, a shift in mindset, a shift in mindset, because when you start respecting one another as those beings, then, you know, the intentional cutting people off in traffic, the intentional not moving into a lane so people can move in, it starts affecting the littlest of actions every day because you're looking, you've changed your vision. You actually care about their well-being. Yes. That's what we need to do with the whole issue of abortion to stop using people and start helping people and um, start loving more. We really, really do need to do that. Um, Yeah. And, uh, you know, part of the, the bitter roots of this whole thing was on everybody's shoulders. You know, the the worry about shame over the the teenage daughter, the cultural worry that, you know, none of that is steeped in the first commandment of love. None of it. I was a guardian ad litem. And I can say that most of the cases where a child was taken out of the parent's home, it was placed with the grandparents. And I would have to go and meet and, and be the advocate for the child. And I'd have to see him at the grandparents' house. But it was the same grandparents that didn't show the first child that they had love. And now they're entrusted with the grandchildren, though they might not be beating or, any, or, or hurting the child. They may be feeding them, getting them to school. But this whole concept of love, we are ingrained to desire love. That's the whole premise of our spiritual walk. We're always seeking that love that God can give us. And if we always seek it out of man, then we run from cause to cause and we run from this to that. But that spiritual grounding is what we're talking about here. Because when you have that, then you automatically know that you have uh, a purpose. You, You have, like, you are a great defender of life. That's why you were acknowledged as a recipient of morality, uh, of a morality award. That's not something just happens to anybody. You've been championing for championing the causes for a long time. Well, thank you. Since 2000, and I have to acknowledge that I feel it is a call of God on my life. The arguments that we make are secular based on science and rationality but I do believe that it uh, adds a higher level of existence. And I knew there was a God for many years, but I didn't really surrender until I was an adult. And I sort of said, all right, Lord, if you want this life, you can have it. And I will, I want to surrender to you. And I surrendered to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And I saw immediate change in my life. I began to be a more loving person because the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside you. Once you surrender, you're born again. That's what Jesus said. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. And I did that. I began to see miracles in my life. 
I began, my marriage was improved tremendously. I began to want to share with other people about Jesus. And I've just seen, he's been with me through all the things. I never feel alone again. And it's a reality that he's mm -hmm. with you. He wants to talk to people. Uh, he'll show you the way. Uh, when you read the Bible, it's opened up to you. I remember the first year I said, why didn't anybody ever tell me this before? And uh, it's in there, but you have to seek the truth. I know many people that listen to your show are seeking truth. And God says, if you seek me, I will let you find me. So, you know, I often tell people if they're seeking, uh, well, you know, you may seek other places, but look in the Bible, read the Gospels of John, read about Jesus and ask God if he's real. He'll demonstrate himself to you if you seek him and you're mm -hmm. willing to follow the truth. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we follow what we want because it lets us do what we want to do. And there is a bit of sacrifice in the Christian walk, uh, just as Jesus sacrificed himself for us. He wants us to live a, a, a pure life, a holy life, a life to help other people. We don't, we no longer serve ourselves. So you makes you a better father, better husband, better citizen, all of that, in my opinion. Yes. And I totally agree. And, um, you know, protecting the innocent is part of what I believe this country was founded on. And so what we're talking about today and this potential big decision, this isn't a decision that is looking at trying to divide the country, but maybe we should look at it as it was divided a long time ago by taking these cases that you're, you're you have represented in the past and you currently still do represent because you have a great uh, insight on this entire argument. But the original intentions of the original cases have been hijacked by special interest groups, by people who get paid a lot of money, by people who garnish a lot of power for speeches, personal power, glory, all this stuff. They capture movements, whether it's this one or something else. And as you were saying, even the intention of one of the original cases was completely corrupted for the purpose of an agenda. And, you know, and that agenda really starts feeding into this national agenda of a country that is ruled by an elite class that dictates from the top down instead of us, the people, it's serving us and us, the people from the bottom up putting in representatives. And, you know, just having these wide sweeping national laws, whether it's this one or any other one, steps on states' rights, which is another constitutional amendment. Yes. And the Supreme Court in 1992, uh, the last time it considered whether to reverse Roe v. Wade, the court said, we're going to end the national controversy for all time. At that point in 1992, uh, it had been about, uh, about 30 years, actually, and there was still controversy over it. And the court said, OK, some people have asked us to reverse Roe v. Wade. And up to that point, Roe had been a fundamental right. And 
pretty much all regulation was struck down. So the court said, we're going to make a big compromise. We're going to reduce Roe v. Wade from a fundamental right to a mid-level right where you don't get strict scrutiny, you get undue burden analysis. Like the woman can still get an abortion, but the states are free to regulate it as long as it's not an undue burden. So the court tried to establish a compromise and they said, and this is what the constitution says, and this is it for all time. So we're ending the national debate. Well, obviously that didn't happen. Really, the only way to get national consensus is to let the political processes work it out. You know, prohibition was a good example. Some people really thought we shouldn't have it. They were successful. They got a national ban on liquor and people didn't accept that and kept drinking anyway. And eventually the constitution was amended again. The beauty of both of those were that was done by the people, not the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, for example, once tried to eliminate the death penalty. And even though the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution allows the death penalty, it just it says it just can't allow cruel and unusual punishments. But uh, and then the Supreme Court backed off of that. So when the Supreme Court tries to resolve the most important issues, if it's in the Constitution, they have to follow that. But when they make it up outside the Constitution, then they, they just bring disrepute on the court and undermine the legitimacy of a consent of the governed form of government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My father used to say that the best political alignment is when you had um, one party controlling the Congress and the other party controlling the executive because they'd never get anything done and they won't keep taking your rights because <laughs> they'll just yeah. be fighting each other. That's what he, that was one of the things he said. And, that, and as a young kid, even though he was, you know, staunchly conservative, um, that kind of floored me because I was like, wow. Uh, and this is a while ago, I was a young kid, but already at that point, he could see the writing on the wall how the government kept limiting what we could do. And it sets this pattern in place where each sector of government starts mimicking it. I mean, now it goes all the way down to the HOAs that now impede our right to even own property straight out, which is against the constitution, you know, right? And they want to tell us how big our shrubs are going to be in front of our house. This overreach of power has just gone absolutely berserk. And if you can't run, um, you might be the best hairdresser on the face of the planet. But if you don't know how to jump through the hoops of all of the things you have to file and do just to cut someone's hair, then you can't own your own business. You can't put a shingle out. Kids can't have a lemonade stand without getting harassed by the police because they don't have a business license. I mean, it has gone to a point where it's laughable to say we're a free country at this point. It really is. You know, either you can cut hair or you can't. You really don't need a license for that. Yes. (laughs) That, you know, if you want to go to school to cut hair better, great, wonderful. So it has just gotten to a point where everything on our body is somebody's profit center. 
including our mind, including our spirituality. It's all divided up. Everything belongs to a corporate sector with these hoops to jump through. And at some point in time, there has to be an end because that is an illusion of freedom. The government has so overstepped in every, absolutely every area of life. So, you know, I pray for freedom fighters like you, freedom, you know, people who stand up for life, stand up for liberty, stand up for justice, the letter of morality and law in the country. I really do pray for all of you every night and thank God for you. Well, thank you. And I, I do want to say that this word from the Lord is in the Bible many times. I think he's saying it to America. America, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord. Um, we need to, and I think it'll help stop the bloodshed, the killing, the crime, um, and it'll increase the love. So I know absolutely, that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. What well, is, yeah on the program today. Oh, I thank you so much for your time. And I just want to bless you, your endeavors, because it is so good to share this message because what are we as a country if we don't have love for one another? So thank you, brother. And hope we can catch up again soon. God bless. Thank you for all you do. All right. Take care. Thank you again for tuning in to The Soul Connection. We can be found at soulconnectionusa.com with our developing community. Please join us again every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, find new ways this week and every week to make your own Soul Connections.